0: Good morning. You have your uh, Bible with you, I want to encourage you to begin making your way to the Gospel of Luke. Luke is in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, and you come to Luke. We're going to be in Luke chapter twenty-two this morning. Um, we're going to do our best uh, to get through as much of the content in God's Word in this chapter as we can. Um, we'll see how how time goes with that in mind, but. Um, if you have not been with us in the last couple of weeks or you've missed the last couple of weeks, I know last week kind of launched spring break and a lot of people are gone. We are making our way to the cross. More importantly, we're making our way to the empty tomb. Um, as we've been looking at this last week of Passover or what is known as, sometimes as the Passion Week of Jesus Christ and the things that took place during His life that eventually led to the cross, eventually led to His resurrection. And we began with the triumphal entry last week. We spent time looking at how Mark describes Monday as the next day, and a lot of us can probably relate. You know, Sunday we're all you know, Hallelujah, praise Jesus, and then Monday rolls around, and it's off to work we go, and um, it can be a different change of attitude. Uh, we're going to jump over a couple days for the sake of uh, time, so that when we arrive on Easter, on April 1st, we will be at the at the empty tomb. Uh, you can read uh, the other, <clears throat> excuse me the other days if you'd like in in scripture, and uh, you can also read more about this particular day, which is going to be Thursday, uh, more so in the Gospel of John, chapter 13 through 17. The Gospel of John actually contains the largest uh, recording of the last night that Jesus was with his disciples, the instructions he gave him, uh, the washing of the feet, the prayers for not only them but. You also find that Jesus prayed for you and for me. Um, we're going to be in chapter 22 of Luke, though, so if you have your scripture with you, uh, let's begin. We're going to kind of walk through this, uh, this chapter and kind of break it down, and then we'll bring it all back together and, and how we can apply it to our life. Now, the Word of the Lord says, The festival of unleavened bread, which is called Passover, was approaching. And the chief priests and scribes were looking for a way to put him being Jesus to death, because they were afraid of the people. And then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. He went away and discussed with the chief priests and the temple police how he could hand him over to them. They were glad and agreed to give him silver. Gospel of Matthew tells us that it was 30 pieces of silver. We'll get that in a second. And verse 6 says, So he, being Judas, accepted the offer, and started looking for a good opportunity to portray Him to them when the crowd was not present. Again, we're jumping into this, but the Passover is a celebration. For the Jewish people, you have to go back to the Old Testament, the book of Exodus, as they celebrate when God came and delivered them from the bondage of slavery under Egypt. And he used a man by the name of Moses to do so. And here we find that the Jewish people are once again coming to remember that event of God delivering them, of God bringing them out of slavery. And Jesus comes again at this time of Passover, and he's going to set up a new sort of delivery, not from a physical slavery, but from the slavery of sin. And so these festivals were going on or didn't really take place. The Festival of Unleavened Bread and the Festival of Passover are actually two different festivals, but as time went on, they began to be clumped together in the Jewish world, kind of like what we do when we get to Thanksgiving and Christmas and New Year's here in America. We kind of just clump it together as you know the holiday season. We find the religious leaders are really wanting to do something with Jesus. They want Him to be out of the picture, but they're worried about the people. The people have been fascinated with Jesus Christ. They've been following Him, listening to His teachers. And so the the Pharisees and the scribes are in this tough situation. we got to get rid of this guy, but at the same point in time, we know the people like him, so we, we don't want to lose their affection. And so they're caught in a very tough spot, and then we find that Satan comes upon Judas and moves upon Judas to come and strike a deal. We aren't told here in the Gospel of Luke the amount of money, but if you want to look it up later, Matthew chapter 27, verses 9-10, through 10, tells us that Judas accepts the offer of 30 pieces of silver, which is very interesting because, again, if you go back to the book of Exodus, it is that amount, 30 pieces of silver, which God defines for the price of a slave. I don't know whether Judas, uh, I'm sure he was aware of the price and what it meant, and some people suggest that Judas perhaps took this offer of 30 pieces of silver to really stick it to Jesus one more time. As Jesus was telling his disciples that they were to be servants of people and serving one another and become the lowest. Perhaps Judas in his last moments, said, well, then I will go fix myself as a slave and sell myself as a slave and become the lowest of slaves. And then I will show Jesus just what can be done through this. We don't know. It's all speculation. But what we can gather here in verses 1 through 6, something that we're all dangerous of being involved in, even in this moment, is here we have the Pharisees. Here we have the scribes and the chief priests and the temple police. And you have Judas and you have the 12 disciples. And we have all these things in the midst of celebration, in the midst of the Passover, in the midst of the festival of unloving bread in the midst of being reminded of what God had done for them, in the midst of singing His praises and worshiping Him, not only that, but in the midst of the presence of God as Jesus was the physical manifestation of God to these people, God in the flesh, that we can be in the midst of this worship service. We can be in the midst of the presence of God as we come together and where two or more are gathered in His name, we're given the promise of Scripture that He is there. We can be in the midst of all of this and be exactly like these individuals, be exactly like the chief priests and the Pharisees and the scribes and Judas, and we can miss and not have a heart for God. We can go through all the motions of remembering and celebrating who God is and how great He is and what He has done. We can be in His presence. We can hear His voice spoken through His Word to our hearts. But in the midst of it, we can still check out and not have a heart for God where Scripture reveals when we don't have a heart for God and a heart that is tuned to Him, we end up being opposed to Him, being opposed to what He wants to do in your life in this moment. That's why I love Sundays. As a matter of fact, why I love any time we gather in the name of the Lord and we open up His Word because there's this opportunity for God to do something incredible in your and my life that we never even expected to happen. But if our hearts are not tuned to Him, and not prepared, and just coming before Him and saying, all right, God, have Your way with me, then we can be just like these, and we can be in His presence and worshiping Him, but not have a heart for Him. It goes on in chapter 22, we'll pick up in verse 7. So the day of unleavened bread came when the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Verse 9, where do you want us to prepare it, they ask him. And we need to understand that the question here in the disciples is not a question of understanding, but most likely a question of disbelief. It was during the Passover celebration that thousands upon thousands would come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover and what would also be known as the Pentecost, and they would stay. And so all these rooms would be rented out. Remember, we're told up until this moment, Jesus and disciples have been staying at Bethany. about two miles away, and they've been journeying in every single day and, and going back every single night. But here on the night that the Passover lamb was to be sacrificed, on the night in which they were supposed to remember what God had done in Exodus, they were to go and find a room. I don't know if you've ever been traveling during Christmas or during Thanksgiving, and you get to a spot where you can't find a room. It's very frustrating a couple years ago, Jamie and I took a, a group of youth when I was still in youth pastoring uh, to a thing called uh, Dare to Share, which was up in St. Louis, and I had booked the hotel rooms. And in booking the hotel rooms, I went through the whole thing online and thought I had it all together. I even printed off my receipt. I I printed the map to the hotel from the event. And so we arrive at the hotel. we, We go in. I say, all right, here's my receipt. This is where we're staying. And she looks at me and says, well, you forgot to make sure that this was the date. I had booked the hotel room two months from that night. And that wouldn't have been an issue in St. Louis, except for the fact that the Blues were playing in the playoffs at that moment in time. And so everyone was in seeing that. Uh, This event was going on. So every hotel around this event was booked. There was another conference going on downtown. uh, And so everything was booked down there. We ended up having to stay in Arnold, if you're familiar at all with St. Louis, whereas our event was down uh, at the Chevette Center or Chevette Arena. And so we, we had to call almost every hotel, see if we can find a room. This is what the disciples are doing. They're in panic mode. It's not, okay, uh, what do you want us to do? It's how in the world are we going to find a place the night of? With all these people here in Jerusalem, how are we going to do this? And where do you want us? Where should we go? And so what we find the way this week began when Jesus gave his disciples specific instructions about finding the donkey and what to say and where to find it and where to bring it and how to do it. Jesus does it once again in verse 10. Listen. Listen, he said to them. When you've entered the city, which would be Jerusalem, A man carrying a water jug will meet you. That's pretty specific, right? Follow him into the house he enters. And then tell the owner of the house, the teacher asks you, where's the guest room where I can eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large furnished room upstairs and make the preparations there. So they went and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the the Passover. This is what the word of God is meant to do in our life. Jesus calls the disciples again, verse 10, listen. The word of God is is meant to tell us where to go, how to get there, what to expect, and the end results that we we can expect when we get there. Just as Jesus did with the donkey at the beginning of the week, so he does here near the end of the week and saying, look, this is where you are to go. This is what you are to look for. This is what you are to say when you get there, and this is what you can expect to happen. This is what the Word of God wants to do in our life. Even though the disciples probably had their doubts that there's no way there's going to be a room left, as they go in, they find it exactly the way Jesus lays it out. And what we see is that following our Lord is always going to require a present faith to get past our present doubts. A verse as I was thinking about this passage this morning, and um, if you ever want to know how you put together a message, we can have that conversation, but it's basically edited up to the point you deliver it. But this verse kept coming to mind as I was thinking about what Jesus did here in Psalm 119, 105. It says, Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light on my path. Your word, God. Your Bible, your Holy Scripture, your voice that has been written down and put on pages that I can have in my hand, that I can read off my phone or my tablet. Your word is what is a lamp unto my feet. Your word is what shines the light that I'm supposed to go down. Your word is what shows me the way in which I'm supposed to be. It's not my word. It's not the president's word. It's not some politician's word. It's not even my thoughts. It's not what I think about how this should go or, or how I think this should, should work out. It's not that. It's not even my opinions. What I think is right and wrong is not my experiences. Well, this is how it happened in the past. Well, this is how it happened in the future. It's not my understanding of how I think it should all work together according to my plan. It's not even my faith or lack thereof. It is the Word of God that lights our path. And it is when we don't hold and cling to the Word of God when we will get on the wrong path. Jesus comes and says, listen, listen. He's already told them, I am the Word. I am the living Word. Listen to my instructions and everything will work out exactly the way it needs to work out. Again, it may not be according to the way we want it. But what Jesus does and and what we can gloss over here, picking up in verse 14. When the hour came, and that would be sundown, he, again speaking, Jesus, reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And I know there's the famous Last Supper, the painting. The reclining at the table literally is they would be on the ground and pillows. It would be kind of an interesting scene. If we walked in on it today, it would kind of look awkward, uh, particularly knowing that John was leaning against Jesus. And we, you know, if you're kind of... uh, Homophobic, You would probably get antsy in that situation. But this was a very intimate setting. That's what the Passover is meant to be. It was a very intimate setting. And matter of fact, when you turn back to the book of Exodus, what you see is the Passover meal was designed for family. It was designed for family. And what Jesus is doing here is he is telling his disciples, this wasn't for everybody. He wasn't inviting everybody to come and be a part of this. And he had followers upon followers, but it was the disciples. And before this night is over, before they leave the upper room, before he finishes what we would call the Lord's Supper, Jesus, he he tells Judas, you can go do your thing. See, this event was was not for everyone. This was an intimate setting with the Savior. This was a time where Jesus is now redefining what family is. And he invites them and he begins telling them about what is going to transpire and and what this moment means. Pick it up in verse 15. He said, I have fervently desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. He's letting them know, look, something's coming. I'm going to try to prepare you. And what we're ready to do here, though they would have been familiar with that growing up as a Jewish boy. They would have done this every single year and celebrating the Passover. They would have taken the lamb and, and eaten it. And the Bible tells us the instruction that if, if you can't eat it yourself and you're sharing with one family, but then you go back to your house with your immediate family and you partake, of the Passover meal. You eat of the lamb. You make sure nothing is wasted. You do it with your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand for that ready of departure and being ready to go. But you do it with your family. And Jesus saying, you are now my family and I've got to prepare you for what is about to happen. Because I wanted to do this before I suffer. If I tell you, verse 16, I will not eat of this again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he said, take this and share it amongst yourselves. This is my body which is given for you, and do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But look, the hand of the one betraying me is at the table with me, for the Son of Man will go away as has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he, is be, whom he is betrayed. And if we look into the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and John, we can find that it is at this moment before the passing of the final cup that Jesus excuses Judas and tells him, go do what you need to do. But one thing we can look over, one thing that just kind of jumped out to me is verse 17 says he took a cup. Then verse 19, he took the bread. In verse 20, he took the cup after supper. And so I want you to look, what what does that mean? Is it just kind of passing around the same cup and going around? But when it comes to the Passover meal, there are actually four cups at the table. And the four cups were, were symbolic of deliverance, freedom, redemption, and adoption. And the cups of deliverance and freedom would be the cups that would be taken at the initial blessing. It would be at the start of the meal. So when you look there in verse 17, it's one of those two cups. I believe it's the cup of freedom because the cup of deliverance would be as soon as they gathered into the room and they had done the washing and done the prayer, they would have that first cup to launch the celebration of the Passover. And so this cup of freedom, Jesus passes around and he says, take this and share it amongst yourselves. For I tell you from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the, till the kingdom of God comes. And this, this symbolism we find in the Passover meals, the same symbolism we find in the Lord's Supper, which we'll be taking next week. See, the Jewish people didn't believe that when they took of the Passover meal and they drank of the cups, they were going back to Egypt into bondage. And the next day they're going to have to go out in haste. They did it to remember They did it to celebrate what God had done. and So when we come to the Lord's Supper, just as the Passover meal had all this symbolism, we come to the Lord's Supper, we don't believe that the the cup and the bread transforms into the physical body or the physical blood of Christ, but they are symbolic of the blood that was spilled and the body that was broken. We come here to remember what, what Jesus has done. This second cup in Luke, there in verse 20, the one that came after the meal, would be the cup of redemption. And Jesus passes around this cup and says this is the new covenant in my blood because that is how redemption comes. Redemption only comes through Jesus Christ. And this is what he's trying to prepare his disciples to understand what is going on when they took up the final cup of adoption it would have been before they left to go out to the garden or uh, to the garden of Gethsemane on the mount of olives. At some point in there, they took that final cup. But before they could do that, look in verse 24. So Jesus is setting up this beautiful family setting. So you are now my family. You're my brothers. We're together. We're celebrating this together. And I'm preparing you for what's going to happen. In the midst of this, a dispute also arose among them about who should be considered the greatest. So in the midst of this beautiful thing, see, we we want to point at Judas and the scribes and the Pharisees and the chief police, that they were in the presence of God and, and in that place of being able to celebrate God, but they didn't have a heart for God, but in the midst of being with Jesus Christ and hearing his instructions and his preparations, here are the disciples, and they kind of go chase that rabbit. I wonder who's his pet. I wonder who's going to sit right by him in the kingdom of God. The Bible also lets us know this isn't the first time this happened. James and John, the sons of thunder, had dear old mama come to Jesus on their behalf and ask if her boys could sit at the right and left hand. Jesus lets us know as he begins to, to tell his disciples that it's not about being great, it's about serving. Verse 27, we'll pick up there. For who is greater, the one at the table or the one serving? Isn't it the one at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves, and you are those who stood by me in my trials. I bestow on you a kingdom just as my Father bestowed on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. And you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel, but it begins with a heart of service. It's not about being the greatest. It's about lifting Christ up. We're going to jump over for the sake of time and pick up in verse 54. Basically, this dispute begins happening. Jesus points to Simon, kind of a summary. Of Simon, look, you know, Satan's after you. He, he wants you. Uh, he, he's coming to ditch you that you may churn away from me. And Simon, you know, of course, I'll never do that. I'll, I'll die for you, Jesus. And, you know, he tells him, you know, the rooster's going to crow, and by that time, it's going to be three times, Simon. Three times you're going to deny me. Eventually head out to make their way to the garden, and, and verse 39 says, they made, He went out and made his way as usual to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples follow him. And here's what I want us to pick up. At this point in time, everything seems normal. The only thing that is out of the ordinary at this moment in time is Judas is not with the group. Everything is going as usual. This was a normal place that Jesus would go to retire, to go and pray, and to be with his disciples. This was a normal routine of Jesus. He did not go to the garden to hide or to flee or, or to hope that Judas wouldn't be able to find him. Matter of fact, it, we're told in Scripture that Judas knew where to find Jesus because this was his normal routine. Jesus went to this place knowing what was going to happen, not to hide, but to get away one more time with those that he loved and prepare them for the moments that were going to come. It was his usual to go to the Mount of Olives, verse 39. Pick up in verse 54. Well, they seized him and led him away and brought him into the high priest's house. And meanwhile, Peter was following at a distance. Peter already done the ear slashing thing. You can read back later if you'd like. So they said, lit a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together and Peter sat among them. And when a servant saw him sitting in the light and looked closely at him, she said, this man was with him too. But he denied it, woman, I don't know, I don't know him. And after a little while, someone else saw him and said, well, you're one of them too. Man, I am not, Peter said. About an hour later, another kept insisting, this man was certainly with him since he's also A Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I don't know what you're talking about. And immediately he was still speaking, and the rooster crowed, and then the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And so Peter remembered the word of the Lord and how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he, being Peter, went outside and wept bitterly. You know, it's kind of funny that, you know, we don't name our kids Judas. But we will name him Peter. You know, Judas is just that name that's always tied to one who betrayed Jesus. I don't know if you have any Judases in your family. Like, actually, name Judas, not betrayers, but name Judas. <laughs> not confession time for their behalf. We will name our, our kids Peter. What's the difference? Jesus says in Matthew 10 whoever denies me before others, I will deny. Them before my Father in heaven. Both of them betray Jesus. What was the difference? Why do we still name our kids Peter and not Judas? What we see here and what we can piece together with the other Gospels is Judas does have this moment of awakening. He does realize he has done something he should not have done. He goes back to the scribes and the Pharisees. He he pleads with them to take the money back and, and release Jesus. But when they tell them that they can't because it's blood money, Judas takes matters into his own hands. He goes and hangs himself. He tried to do something, but when it didn't work the way he, he thought it would go, he takes matters into his own hands. He never seeks out Jesus for reconciliation. He never seeks out a, a moment of repentance. He just feels bad. He knows he did something wrong. He's not necessarily sorry about it. He just doesn't want it anymore on, on his plate. Peter, on the other hand, who betrays Jesus just as much as Judas, so if he doesn't have money for it, Peter has a reaction Verse 62 says, he went outside and wept bitterly. And what the difference is, is Peter comes to his understanding. He remembers the word of the Lord. He remembers how God said, this is what you're going to do. And in that moment, Peter could not physically stay in the place that he was. He was so broken for what he just did that he had to get out of there. It's the biblical word repent. Peter had to change his direction. Judas just kept plowing ahead, believing that he could fix it. He could get it to work. And that's the difference between a Judas and a Peter. Peter looks to Christ to fix him, and a Judas looks to himself. Are you one of them? There's a couple things I want us to take away before we get out of here. The first thing I want us to see, which I hope is good news for us all, is God does not call perfect people. God does not call perfect people. Look at these. Just these individuals in the room, in the upper room with Jesus, who invites in this intimate moment with him. The closest individuals to Jesus on the planet at this moment, the closest individuals to God in the flesh in this moment. And within this group you have fishermen, which I understand you may have the hobby of going fishing and, and that's great. But fishermen in this society were looked at as uneducated and untrained individuals. You did not grow up wanting to be a fisherman unless you were taking over the father's business or the family's business. They were looked at as outcasts in, in the midst of the fishermen, the four originals that Jesus called. Peter was one who Jesus literally said, get behind me, Satan, to. He literally looked at Peter and called him Satan. Now, you want to insult somebody? Go ahead and try and see what happens. But Peter's rebuked by Jesus. And again, here on this last night, Peter, his first denial isn't that he wasn't with Jesus. His first denial of Jesus is that Jesus doesn't know what he's talking about. Jesus, there's no way I would deny you. I will die for you. I will go to to prison for you. That's his first denial. Here's a man who wrestled with the authority of, of Christ in his life. In the end, Peter denies him. Judas completely abandons Jesus. Then there's Matthew, a tax collector, tax collector viewed by the Jewish society as a traitor to their people. You have Simon, the zealot one of the disciples, who came from a background of prejudice and being a radical. As a matter of fact, if you read through the Gospels, you will pick up that many of the disciples, if not all of them, had some sort of prejudice towards other people. As Jesus was preparing His disciples to be servant leaders, in the midst of that conversation to be servant leaders, they're talking about who's going to be the greatest. Who's going to sit right by Him? This wasn't the first time Jesus was preparing disciples for what was going to happen in the next couple hours. He did it when they came to Jerusalem that first week. He did it several times throughout His ministry. Yet here, as Jesus is implementing the Lord's Supper in verses 14 through 23, Those who are closest to him have no clue. They're oblivious. They have no clue what he's trying to set them up for. When he goes to the garden with them and breaks them up into groups, a group of eight and a group of three, and then we're told Jesus goes a little bit further in the garden, he gives them one thing to do. One thing. Pray. The hour is near. One thing, one command. And they couldn't even do that. They fell asleep. Jesus, we're told in the other gospel, has to come to him two other times to wake them up. And the third time he comes with the sound of a mob coming to arrest them. In the end, when Jesus is arrested, all of those closest to him run for their lives in fear of their own selves. Peter denies him. John is the only one who keeps a close enough distance to see what is going on. And I read through this last night and these men who have been with Jesus for three years and hearing him, getting to look into the eyes of God, getting to hear his face, voice physically in there getting to see the miracles getting to see the healings and the raisings from the dead and getting to hear his teachings and 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 getting that that the benefit of sitting with Jesus outside of the teachings and Jesus being able to expound on them and what they meant and here are these men in the very last hours no clue they have no clue and it's a reminder for us that God does not call perfect people. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, 12, and 23, There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who do- does good, not even one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You may be visiting with us this morning. You may have had some past church issues that happened. We are not a perfect church. We are not a perfect people. We are an imperfect people representing a perfect God. Sometimes we get it right. Sometimes we don't. But God doesn't call perfect people. And that may be the one thing that is keeping you from accepting Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, because you've got all this stuff you feel you need to get straightened out. You need to get your life together. You need to stop doing something or start doing something. And once you get all that stuff together, then you can accept Christ. Then you can be a part of what Christ wants to do through you. But the reality is that's not what God is calling you to do. He's not calling you to be perfect before you accept His perfect sacrifice. He's simply inviting you to accept that. Because what God wants to ultimately do in you and me, is He wants to perfect us. He doesn't call us to be perfect, but God wants to perfect us. The Bible tells us that we're made in the image of God and His likeness. We read that in Genesis chapter, excuse me, chapter 1 and 2. We're also told in Genesis chapter 3 that image and likeness becomes tainted by sin. And what we can do is we can try to fix that ourselves, but the reality is we cannot fix our sin problem. It is only through Jesus Christ that we can fix, have our sin problem fixed. And when we accept Jesus Christ as God's ultimate sacrifice for our sins, the Bible says that we are now clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We are clothed in His perfection. So when Jesus says in Matthew 5, 48, Be perfect, therefore, as your Heavenly Father is perfect, a misinterpretation of that passage of Scripture means that we have to get it right all the time, which is not what it's saying. What is being said here and what Jesus is teaching is that there is to be a continual progression in the hearts and lives of God's people to become more like God. The Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 1 that we are to be imitators of God. First Corinthians chapter 15 verse 16 that we are have the mind of Christ. First John chapter 2 verse 6 that we should walk just as Jesus walked. Galatians chapter 5, verse 25, we are called to keep in step with the Spirit. Romans chapter 12, verse 2, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. God does not call perfect people to belong to him, but ultimately what God desires is to perfect you and me to become more like him. And we do not allow God to do that in these settings, in these gatherings. We live in opposition to what God wants to do in our life. When we make Sunday morning about checking in and checking out and I can go live my life how I want the rest of the time, we are living in opposition to what God wants to do in your life. God wants to transform you and to perfect you into His likeness and into His image the way He originally created you to be. So what keeps you and me from doing that? The answer is pride. Pride that we know better, we can do better, and we understand things better. Chapter 22 of Luke is full of pride. The religious leaders, they understood better. Judas, he felt he could do better. And Peter felt he knew better. Pride is what will keep you from allowing God to transform your heart, transform your life, transform your family, transform your workplace, transform your checking account and your retirement account, transform your vacations. Pride keeps God from doing that because God is not going to force His way into your life. It's by opening the door when He comes and knocks. What pride ultimately says it comes from our sinful nature, sinful nature is that we are going to be the God of our life. We are going to be in charge, and we know what is best. The Bible, though, tells us, maybe you have a pride issue, that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There are several individuals in this passage in chapter 22, and it comes down to right now, in this moment, there are basically three choices we can make. And we find these choices being made in chapter 22, as God has laid his word before us, and he's moved upon our hearts to respond in some way. The first way is we ignore it. A lot of people go to church and they check out a church and they ignore whatever God has laid upon their heart, the changes God is trying to draw them to do, to implement those acts of repentance, those signs of conviction. We can come into the presence of God, celebrate God, worship God, give money for God's kingdom to continue to expand. We can say that we belong to the family of God and the house of God. But when God's word comes upon us to transform us and mold us into his likeness, we can completely ignore it. That's what the religious leaders are doing. problem is they're having a hard time ignoring Jesus. He's he's kind of tough like that. So they had to get rid of him. And what we can do in our life is we can just ignore the sin that God keeps revealing. We can just ignore what God is wanting to do, and we can just continue to live in opposition. We can begin pushing off our sin that is not such a big deal. We can keep pushing it off to another day. Well, I'll just do it. And I'm, just, I'm just not right now. It's too tough. Now's not a good time. <laughs> the reality is, there's going to be a day we're going to stand before God, and everything we've ever done, every word we've ever said, every action we've ever had is going to be brought into the light, and everything we've been trying to ignore and push off. What a heartbreaking moment it's going to be to look at our Father who loves us and sorry. The other response we have when God comes and speaks to us is that we can be like Judas. We can try to fix it ourselves. You know, I'm just going gonna, gonna to make this right. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do better. I'm going to work harder. I'm going to get more involved. I'm going to give more money. I'm going to pray more. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start reading my Bible. Every year, people, they, they try to fix it themselves. You know, life just is not going the way it should go. My marriage is not going the way it should go. My kids just don't look the way they should look. They aren't acting the way they should act. My job is just not doing what it should do. So I'm just going to do better. I'm going to work harder at this Christianity thing. I'm going to work harder about this relationship with God. We can be exactly like Judas, and we can try to pay back everything we've done wrong, and in the end, we're going to have the same outcome. We'll still be trapped in death. But it is is only God who can fix our sin problem. We can't. And the Bible says the way we fix our sin problem is when God's Word comes into our life and comes into our heart and brings conviction upon us because He loves us. It is a calling to repent. It is to change direction, but also to change my mindset about that particular issue. And so that brings us to the final way, and that is repentance. I read verse 62 that Peter, even though he could not believe he would get to that moment, Jesus, I will never deny you. Ever. It's ridiculous. In reality, when that moment came, and Peter realized what we all have to realize is that we all fall short. Peter's response was not that, you know, I'm going to fix this. He came to a point where he was weeping bitterly. The full weight of his denial, the full weight of his sinful action, and the full weight of God's word came upon him, and he could not remain in that place. That's repentance. Repentance to change our course of direction and thoughts and to turn them to God. And when Peter did this, he was restored. Finally, I want us to see that it is Jesus who's our perfection. First John chapter 2. Verse 2 says, he himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10 says, love consists in this, not that we love God, but that he loved us, and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. What is an atoning sacrifice? Well, you'd have to go to the wonderful book of Leviticus in the Old Testament, chapter 16, we don't have time to do it today, but basically what the atoning sacrifice did is there were two goats, one we could call the scapegoat, and the sins of the people of Israel, of God's people, would be transferred onto this goat and they'd be released into the wilderness. It was, it was a, so, a sign that God was removing those sins. So when Jesus is the atoning sacrifice, or propitiation is the other word that is used in, in Scripture sometimes, it is saying that what He did is that we deserved God's wrath. We deserved God's anger. We did, that was our, that's our punishment. But what Jesus did is Jesus came and stood before God and hid us behind him. And he took God's wrath for our sin upon himself so that when we confess Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, and we believe that God punished Jesus for us and they put him in a tomb, but he rose again. And we believe that. The Bible says that he is our atoning sacrifice. He removes our sins as far as the east is from the west that they are no more. I no longer seen in the eyes of God as a sinner but now a saint and a child of his. I've been adopted. I'm a, I have a new family, an eternal family. But the Bible is also very clear that if you have not accepted Jesus as your perfection, as your atoning sacrifice, you are lost and still in your sin. And the Bible doesn't say this to be mean or or to be narrow-minded. It's just saying this out of love and truth, that you are still in your condemnation. You still have the wrath of God laying on you in this moment. Yes, He is a loving God, but He is a just God. And God has brought you this moment, and here's what you can do. You can, you can okay, you know, I'm just going to ignore this because if I walk up front, and everybody already thinks I'm saved, but if I walk up front, they're going to start thinking things. Do you fear man or God more? Some of you may just ignore it in this moment. Some I'm like, well, okay, well, I'll do that, but I just, I really, this is my first time at Harvest Hill. I should probably come more often before I do this. So you're going to try to fix it. But are you going to come this moment and you're going to fully repent before the Father and say, you know what? I understand why Jesus had to do what he did. I understand God isn't calling me to be perfect, but God is going to perfect me, and I am trusting my life, my eternal salvation to Jesus Christ. We're going to have a moment of invitation. And that's maybe where you need to come. But maybe you're here and God has been speaking to your heart because you're his child. The Spirit's been working on you and convicting you, and God has been speaking to you about some things in your life that just need to, they're not aligned to His Word. And those things need to change. But you've been trying to fix it, or you've been ignoring Him. but now in this moment it is evident, okay, God, I'm no longer going to be the God of my life, but I'm going to allow you to be the God of my life. I'm going to lay down my pride, and I'm going to come and repent before you and lay this at your feet that's where you are then this invitation is for you too i believe there's power in coming forward it lets it be known that i'm not doing this in secret it let's it be known that i'm not perfect i've got flaws i've got flaws it lets it be known that i trust god wherever you are this is now the time to respond i'm going to ask jackson to come on up let's pray together father thank you for this day Thank you for loving us, and thank you, Lord, that you have just invited us into this incredible family that sometimes we get an idea about, but sometimes we have no clue what that means eternally and and right now in this moment. Lord, I thank you. You don't call us to be something we can't. You just call us to trust you and call us to trust the process and what you're doing in our life. And Lord, thank you for the conviction you've brought upon me. Thank you for your discipline in my life. Thank you that you are continuing to to get this stuff out of my life that is not bringing you glory. I thank you for the good work you're doing. And I thank you for the work you're doing in your children's life and my brother's and sister's life in this moment. Lord, let us come before you and just trust you. Even though it may not make sense, but let us just trust you. Father, I pray for the individual here who does not know you as their Lord and Savior. Lord, that you would be with them in this moment. You would give them the courage. You would just pick them up by your loving embrace. And you would bring them forward. That they would come and confess you as their Lord and Savior. They would come and ask forgiveness. They come and be saved. Lord, I pray for them. I know you're working on their heart right now in this moment. I know there's individuals here who don't know whether or not they're saved or not. They may have done something that kind of looked like salvation, but they're not sure of it. And there are people here who have yet to make a personal confession of faith. Well, I pray your Spirit just comes upon them in such a way that they can't stay where they are. Not for my glory, not for Harvest Hill's glory, Lord, but for yours. For it is your desire that all people be saved. thank you for this day. I thank you for your word. I thank you that you loved us sometimes despite ourselves. You love us sometimes despite our unbeliefs. Thank you for being a God of love. Forgive me if I failed you in any way. If I've gotten in your way. I thank you for this day. Let us now in this moment respond And not just be hearers of your word, but doers. I pray this all in the name of Jesus.